It's one week before the 2022 midterm elections, and for better or for worse, the investigation into former President Trump's documents in Mar-a-Lago and its coverage in the news media are only intensifying. I believe the most recent estimate I saw is that right now about uh, 13 or 1400 people in the United States have original classification power. So that's quite a lot of people. But what makes it really skyrocket the number of people with classification power is the power of derivative classification power, which at any given time is, you know, two, three million people. So that even widens further who has classification power. The fear that courts seem to have of second guessing classification. And you so you see something similar on the part of Congress people. You know, sometimes members of Congress are quite complicit in not being informed because it makes their lives easier. The Obama administration, and this surprises people to hear that it was it was Obama that had a sub- substantial hand in this, but in the Obama administration, more than twice as many prosecutions were brought against um, uh, leaks of information to the media than in all previous administrations uh, combined. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and the Trump administration outpaced the Obama administration. It's incredibly malleable and nebulous, um, the abstract definitions that orders typically have. Um, you know, they, they just raise questions. They raise more questions than they answer. Questions of what is uh, damage to national security or grave or serious damage. Did you know that President Richard Nixon's executive order on classified information is the model that many look to about examples of disclosure of what kind of information might constitute damage to national security and at what level. The obvious irony of using Nixon's executive order on classified information as a model for anything is that he was notoriously obsessed with secrecy. Hey there, news peelers. Today is November 4, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this Peel in the History Behind News, the histories of many countries we read, watch, and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories. And of course, several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Here are some numbers as provided by the Wall Street Journal. In August, FBI agents removed 15 boxes from Mar-a-Lago containing more than 11,000 documents. 67 of those documents were marked as confidential, 92 marked secret and 25 marked top secret. Now, one could argue that these markings don't really matter because Kosh Patel, Mr. Trump's former White House aide, has alleged that the former president broadly declassified documents when he left the White House in January 2021. But that's not the end of the story 
at least for two reasons. First, Mr. Patel, who previously pleaded the fifth, was granted immunity just this week, and will now likely testify before a grand jury. According to the New York Times, prosecutors grant immunity to witnesses only when they believe the witness has information that is essential to their case. So in this case, Mr. Patel may have important new information. Maybe his mind has been refreshed about the documents in Mar-a-Lago. The second reason is a little more basic. It's something that has been bugging me for some time. It's sort of a practical question, which I have to admit I was a little bashful in asking my guest about it. The question is this: Shouldn't classification or declassification, for that matter, of a document be communicated? I mean, otherwise, how would people know? You see where I'm going with this? I'm not talking partisan politics or some complicated law here. What I want to know is this: If a president thinks a certain document is not classified any longer, how would people know that that specific document is declassified? They can't read his mind, so shouldn't there be a formal process of declassification? As it turns out, my question wasn't half bad because my guest, Professor Heidi Kitroser, explains that under the Espionage Act. One cannot declassify document by merely thinking it, or by communicating it only to one or two confidants. My guest is a professor at Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law. Professor Kit Roser is an expert on the constitutional law of federal government secrecy and on separation of powers and free speech law. More broadly, she's the author of the following book: Reclaiming Accountability, Transparency, Executive Power, and the U.S. Constitution. Which was awarded to 2014 Chicago Ken College of Law Roy C. Palmer Civil Liberties Prize. She's on the steering committee of a new initiative, the Free Expression Legal Network, spearheaded by Yale's Media Freedom and Information Access Clinic, and the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. To learn more about Professor Kit Roser, you can visit her academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So. Stay with me as Professor Kit Roser and I peel the history behind this news. Professor Kit Roser, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Let's start with the basics, real basics. What is classified information? Sure. So, classified information、um, is typically、uh, identified by, or I should say, defined、uh, by executive order, as opposed to by some sort of congressional statute.、Um, and the current governing executive order、um, that that defines and lays out procedures for creating and declassifying or classifying information. Um, is actually the order that goes back to the Obama administration because President Trump never replaced it,、um, and、uh, President Biden might well replace it at some point, but hasn't yet.、Um, and under that order, the definitions are pretty standard, pretty consistent with what past executive orders have been, and that is、uh, there are three levels of classified information. All of them relate to the information's relationship to national security. Um, and specifically, the the base level, which is called confidential information,、um, and I'm paraphrasing here. I don't I don't have the exact、uh, wording sure, right in front of me,、sure. but it's something to the effect of、um, information, the unauthorized release of which. 
uh, could reasonably be expected to damage national security. Um, and then the next two levels are just variations on that with the level of damage being more serious. So secret information, uh, information, the unauthorized disclosure of which one could reasonably expect uh, to seriously damage national security and top secret being information one could reasonably expect would gravely damage national security. Um, so that's kind of a long way of saying that the gist of classified information is supposed to be information that if disclosed without authorization could pose some damage to national security. You mentioned um, orders, presidential orders. Uh, when I asked you, you know, what is uh, classified information? Uh, is, is, is the definition uh, or classification of information is it something that is generally done with every new administration? Uh, you're shaking yeah. your head as in yes? Yes, yes. Uh, mm. Yes, you picked up on that that nonverbal cue. That's right. <laughs> um, so actually, the history here is interesting. And I know you may want to get more into history later, but um, just very brief background. Um, so going so actually the first uh presidential or i should say executive order on classification was not issued until 1940 um and the first peacetime uh executive order establishing classification levels wasn't issued till 1951 um so it doesn't go all the way back in our nation's history but ever since those first executive orders every presidential administration has used some executive order. In many cases, presidents have created their own executive orders. Um, in some cases, like with the Trump administration, they simply relied on the executive order uh, that was still standing from a previous administration. I'm, I, I'm just wondering, why do you need renewed executive orders, more or less with, you know, every other administration or every administration? I mean, isn't classified information, classified information, uh, you know, wh why does a new president need to uh, sort of make some sort yeah. of proclamation about that? It's a great question. So there, it's because there are um, all kinds of nuances, some of which are somewhat more technical, uh, some of which, um, you know, relate more to kind of big picture ideas about government secrecy and the policy um, pertaining to government secrecy that oftentimes lead presidents to say, you know what, I, I'm going to tinker with the old order to varying degrees. Um, so, uh, so for example, in the case of the Obama administration, there's a part of the order um, that says that something to the effect that when there is doubt as to whether information should be classified or should be classified at a particular level, um, that generally the classifier should defer to kind of the lowest, uh, the lower of the two levels. If you're deciding, say, between top secret and secret. Um, and For example, the confidential level that you were talking about, level one, I see. Exactly. Okay. Um, or if it should be classified at all. Right. And, and so that was sort of an expression of. Um, a belief in tilting toward transparency, if all else is equal. So that's an example of the president really, you know, kind of putting a little bit of a policy stamp um, on the uh, order. So that's one reason presidents might um, uh, choose to kind of put their own spin on it. Um, sometimes the changes are more 
either stylistic or technical. So for example, um, Richard Nixon, uh, who despite his administration having been so closely associated with secrecy, uh-huh. um, <laughs> actually, yeah. right, right, actually had an executive order that some look to as a model in one respect. And that is he had an order that actually used examples of what might constitute damage to national security. So, you know, for for example, next to top secret could gravely damage national security. Um, you know, he had examples saying, you know, something that betrayed this or that or revealed this or that um, uh, might be an example of something that could be top secret. And some people actually look to that and say, you know, a, future presidents should restart the use of examples because it's incredibly malleable and nebulous, um, the abstract definitions that orders typically have. Um, you know, they, they just raise questions. They raise more questions than they answer. Questions of what is uh, damage to national security or grave or serious damage. Um, so that's another example uh, of a difference. Um, and sometimes, you know, there, there might be differences in terms of means of declassifying information, which is also typically a part of these orders. Um, so again, there, there are reasons ranging from the technical and mundane to kind of stylistic to important um, uh, sort of two differences that reflect important policy distinctions that, that explain why presidents sometimes create their own executive order. So I guess executive order is a process of, of, classifying or perhaps declassifying um, uh, information, but is there a process to get to that executive order? Does the Department of Justice, Attorney General get involved? Can a president think of something to be classified and that becomes classified? Yeah, well, so interesting. So your 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 question actually is a great, um, provides kind of a great avenue to break down the difference between making an executive order and applying the executive order. So when a president drafts a new executive order, um, you know, they there are different approaches they can take, but typically, you know, it's a relatively formal process of drafting the order, putting it in writing, publishing it, making it available, right? So that, um, you know, people, anyone, who might in any way be affected by it can look and see, okay, this is what the executive order says. These are the classification standards. This is how we declassify. Um, and in the case of President Obama, for example, he um, at least, you know, made kind of, um, it, at least on the surface, it appeared that he was inviting sort of a lot of um, input. Oh, I see discussion. Right, exactly. Discussion from, you know, people in various, everyone from people within the government to people in public interest groups that focus on government oversight and accountability to provide input. Um, But, you know, then there's a separate question of applying the executive order. And so in the case of classification, um, that involves the question of, well, who does the executive order specify? Are the authorities who can classify information? And how is it that the order directs that they classify information? And and that's so that's a somewhat different question, right? Is you know, there's how do you create it and then how do yeah. you create it? Um, with respect to the latter part of my question, which was implicit, and thank you for pointing oh, it out, the application of it. So let's say a piece of document, uh, you know, um, I'm the president, I think uh, that this should be classified. 
do I hand that document or do I tell a person and that goes to archives, whatever department, and then that application goes through? Or if I think of that document should be, you know, should be classified, is that sufficient? Shouldn't there be a process of application? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, and that is, Obviously, I'm referring to Mr. Trump's issues that are going on in the news. Yes, exactly. I was going to say, you know, I'm sure underlying that, um, in addition to it generally being an important question, um, is, you know, a reference to to President Trump's, former President Trump's claims that he, in his case, declassified information just by thinking about it. Um, So to step back, so one of the things that these executive orders typically do, including the currently government governing executive order, um, is that it does specify a process through which information is classified, in addition to specifying um, substantive criteria to define what makes information classified. Um, And so the process uh, consists of a bunch of different things. So one aspect, of course, is, first of all, the question of who has the authority to do this. Um, And the current executive order- You mean to classify or declassify or implement? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. To classify or declassify. Okay. Um, and the current executive order is much like past executive orders in that regard. It, um, you know, establishes a few people at the very top of the executive branch with this power, including the president um, and the vice president um, and, and heads of uh, certain cabinet departments. Um, but in addition to that, it also leaves a lot of room to these and other individuals to delegate um, the power to classify to certain others. And this, um, the power to classify them kind of ends up breaking down into two categories. There are those who have what's called original classification authority um, through some combination of those to whom the, who the executive order specifically names and those who are delegated that power to classify by people named in the order. Um, And by, the power to originally classify or to be an original classifier, what's meant is people who have the power to sort of look at a piece of information or a document or some other item in the first instance and say, you know what, it is my judgment that this document or piece of information, if it were released without authorization, it could damage national security or it could gravely damage national security or what have you. Um, And so those are people who have the power to look at information that's not been classified before and make that determination as an original matter. Mm -hmm. But there's a second category of classification, and that's called derivative classification. Derivative Um, classification? Derivative classification. And, And actually, I should step back to say one more thing about original classification. So... Typically, the, the number of people who have original classification power at any given time varies because it varies depending on, you know, who to whom power has been delegated and how many have that delegated power. Um, I believe the most recent estimate I saw is that right now about uh, 13 or 1400 people in the United States have original classification power. So that's quite a lot of people. Um, but what makes it really skyrocket the number of people with classification power is the power of derivative classification power. And mm-hmm. what that means, so in theory, deri- derivative classification power in theory is not that big of a deal because it just means that you're taking something that 
already has been deemed classified and um, sort of applying that to something that is derivative of the original information. So a, a really simple example would be if you work with classified information, you have a security clearance and you photocopy something that's classified. You can derivatively classify the photocopy. Um, the problem is it tends to be much more complicated than that. Sometimes derivatively classifying means you're looking at a classification guide, which each agency is supposed to create a guide that guides what information is classified and what's not. And you may be following a guide that says, well, something that talks about this or that is classified and then applying that judgment to some document that's not been classified. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that would be called derivative classification. Um, and the people who have derivative classification power, um, it's largely uh, overlaps with those who have security clearances, which at any given time is, you know, two, three million people. Um, so that even widens further who has classification power. Um, oh, go ahead. Um I'm going back in the minute we have left of this segment to uh, my question that related to Mr. Trump's um, statement that I can think and uh -huh. a certain thing becomes uh, uh, classified. Let's put politics aside for a second. I'm now putting my legal hat going back many years to my law school days. If it, let's say that works, let's say a president has that power, just they think it and certain thing becomes classified. Arguing that let's just go with that. The issue that I see, and not Trump related at all, just legally speaking, it hasn't been communicated to anyone. Right. So, right. like, how would you know? Yeah. No, that you're, you're absolutely right. So, first, as a practical matter, um, yeah. if it were theoretically possible to classify yeah. just by thinking about it, what effect could that have if nobody knows? But that gets to a more fundamental uh, dilemma, which is, can you really classify just by thinking of it. Um, and, it, and in fact, the existing executive order um, itself assumes that classification includes more, involves more than thinking about it. Because in addition to specifying who can get classification authority, mm -hmm. it also talks about what classification entails. And it entails things that include putting markings on uh, certainly any documents that are classified, um, otherwise communicating you know, to, to the people who need to know that information is classified, and providing more details, such as the level of classification, um, why the information is classified, who the classifying authority was. Um, so the executive order itself um, demands much more than merely thinking about it. Yeah. And the one thing I, I would add to that is, um, of course, as it relates to Mr. Trump, the, the, the more immediate question is, can he declassify with his mind, right? Can he just tele can he telepathically declassify? He claims he can. Um, I think there's an excellent argument that he can't in part because- He cannot. That he cannot, cannot, okay. right, um, uh, for, for two reasons. One is because um, uh, just like the process of classifying entails communication of that information, similarly, the process of declassifying. Um, and one more point, which is that if you look at the current executive order, just like there are criteria that you have to meet um, and, and in theory are supposed to explain as to why something is classified, there are also criteria for declassifying. So for example, you're not supposed to declassify information 
unless you um, have reason to believe that the relevant danger to national security would no longer exist. Has subsided. Information, right. And even under Trump's story as to what he did, he doesn't claim that he reviewed the information piece by piece and decided it was not dangerous to reveal. Rather, he said, it was convenient. I had to take things to Mar-a-Lago. I did a blanket declassification. That right there would appear to violate the order. Oh, boy. Uh, We'll be back after a short break to talk about legal challenges to classified information. We'll be right back. Last week, Paul Pelosi was attacked at his home in San Francisco. And this week, President Biden delivered a speech warning about political violence ahead of next week's midterm elections. Back in July, I had a conversation with Professor Edward Foley about the history of election violence in our country. In addition, he talked about how we don't quite have the election system that we think we have. Because in our democracy, candidates who receive a minority of votes do actually win elections. So our election system is producing minority winners. In the detailed caption of this episode, I have provided a link to my conversation with Professor Foley, which was in Season 2, Episode 27. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Kitroser. Professor Kitroser, is classified information a frequently litigated area of the law? And I asked that question because when you went through that three different levels of classification. You started using words like seriously and gravely. And just that's just like, you know, that's just the grounds for litigating. What do these words mean? So, um, yeah. Um, So they're not very frequently litigated um, in, and there are two respects in in which the answer is no, not frequently litigated. One respect is that, um, as you can imagine, there just aren't that many cases where, you know, it would, it would be relevant um, to consider, you know, is information properly classified or not. But the second and maybe more important way in which the courts tend not to play a very active role in these cases is that when it does come up, courts are remarkably deferential to the executive branch's decision to classify information. Um, So let me give you two examples. One has Mm -hmm. to do with the Freedom of Information Act. And then the second has to do with the Espionage Act, which is um, on everyone's mind because of the Trump Mar-a-Lago situation. For sure, Um, yeah. So the Freedom of Information Act, the Federal Freedom of Information Act, as as many of your listeners probably know, um, is... You know, it's it's largely a transparency act that establishes sort of a a default rule that uh, much of government information, at least from within the executive branch, from agencies, from within the administrative state, that much of it um, is meant to be available upon request to members. Kind of like you can go to the NIH or FDA or EPA and say, give us your information. Exactly. Exactly. Wall Street Journal can do that. Exactly. It establishes sort of a default, but the, uh, you know, the, the devil is in the details and there are a bunch of exemptions in the act for information that can be kept private by the government. And the very first exemption, exemption one, um, is for information uh, that would, and again, I, I don't have the language right in front of me, but paraphrasing information that national security demands be kept secret. 
Um, and as you can imagine, there's a huge amount of overlap between information that's classified and information that the government says falls under exemption one. Um, well, in 1974, um, Congress uh, passed some important amendments to FOIA, which had initially been passed in 1966. Um, and one of the big amendments was an amendment uh, FOIA, you mean Freedom of Information? Yeah, the Freedom yes. of Information Act. And one of the big amendments was an amendment to Exemption 1 um, that essentially said that the information has to be properly um, identified by the government as, you know, necessary to protect national security. I forget the exact language. Interesting. Yeah. yeah so not by fiat. There has to be a process properly. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and it's very, very clear from the legislative history that Congress very, very intentionally um, uh, passed that exempt or passed those amendments because they thought that the judiciary was too deferential to government claims under exemption one, and that they thought the judiciary basically was too quick to, quick to overclassify information and then hide behind that. I and see. so, yeah, so it, it's extremely clear that what, it, what the amendment to exemption one intended to do was to give courts, to invite courts, to consider information themselves, to look at it in camera, meaning, you know, within the courtroom uh, privately, and to do so as a way of ensuring that information was not just classified, but properly classified. Um, but courts virtually never take that invitation. They overwhelmingly over the years have said, you know, we lack the expertise to second guess whether information is properly classified. And so they generally will not look beyond um, uh, a, a classification marking um, when the government points to classification in order to say information is exempt under exemption one. So, so that's one example. If I may stop you, that's, yeah, sure. uh, this is a really interesting point, uh, a bit tangential, but still uh, courts go beyond their expertise in so many different things. I used to litigate patent law and they get all sorts of experts and maritime law, all sorts of, you know, yeah. um, it's interesting that they don't want to go here. Okay. Uh, I guess the stakes are much higher. Yeah, well, no, that's it. But that's wonderful perspective that, that you bring into the matter, because I, I think you're personally, I think you're absolutely right that courts, there is what we sometimes call a national security exceptionalism. Um, yeah. When it comes to national security, say um, that's actually oh, a thing, national security exceptionalism. Yeah, well, it's kind of a term that commentators use when uh -huh. they're when when they're kind of analyzing the way courts treat national security claims. Um that and the label, you know, refers to the way that courts tend to be afraid um, to second guess the executive when it comes to claims that national security would be hurt if if we did this or that. Yeah. Um, and especially in the realm of secrecy, national security would be hurt if we second guess the executive's mm -hmm. expert judgment mm -hmm. on why this can't be disclosed. Um, so FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, is one example where courts, in, in the rare cases where classification status um, comes up, the courts generally are loath to get involved, other than to ask, is the information classified? If so, we'll defer to the executive that it was yeah. classified. Um, and another example is much more in the news, which is in the Espionage Act. So... 
Yeah, so just to quickly give a little background for your, for your listeners, um, and folks might have heard the term espionage act bandied about in the Mar-a-Lago saga, but just to give everyone very, very quick background. So the 1917 Espionage Act, uh, which was passed on the eve of the U.S. entry into World War I, um, it, it does a number of things, but of most relevance to us are these two sections uh, that which which are they fall under the statutory numbers 18 USC 793D and 793E. And uh, basically what those provisions do is that they say anybody who under 793D has authorized access to classified information. So maybe a government employee with clearance, for example, security mm-hmm. clearance, um, or unauthorized access to information. That's what 793 talks about. So that might be um, let's say somebody who was handed uh, classified documents, but they don't themselves work for the government. Um, anybody who possesses national security information in this way um, and who either retains it without permission or conveys it to someone not authorized to receive it um, can be uh, essentially uh, liable for a felony, which is punishable uh, for fi- by fines and up to 10 years in prison. Now, you might think, oh gosh, that sounds really broad. There must be more to it than that. Um, in the statutory language, there's really not much more to it than that. So the statute refers to, you know, quote, national defense information, unquote. Doesn't even talk about classified information, um, doesn't, as it relates to documents, doesn't even say anything about uh, how harmful uh, uh, you know they might have to be to national security. Uh, essentially, says if 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 you willfully pass on or retain without authorization quote national defense information, uh, then you can be culpable. Now, because of the breadth of this, courts have interpreted it. Um, they've narrowed it a little bit over the years. They have said. Um, and for now, I'll, I'll restrict myself to talking about documents because it's a little different if you're talking about information that's conveyed orally that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's classified. But let's just talk about documents. Um, for national uh, security documents, courts have said, well, OK, national defense information will we'll narrow that what that means a little bit. And it has to be information, can't just be anything that has to do with national defense. It has to be information that was closely held by the government. And it has to be information that um, one could reasonably expect might uh, bring some harm to the United States or help a foreign nation if it were conveyed. Um, And (laughs) although the statute doesn't say anything about classified information, um, courts have said that when we say the information has to be closely held, um, the usual way of showing that would be to show that it's classified. Um, And so if it's classified, it could be considered closely held. The government's trying to keep it secret. Um, Now, the the points that you're making uh, makes me uh, wonder, is is an element of intent required in, yeah. in, in, in all of this, because what if, you know, I get a piece of paper, let's just go with the document examples that you've been sharing here. And I don't really know whether or not it's classified. So that lack of knowledge, is that enough? Or is there sort of the stupid test here as well? You should know. Yeah. Um, so intent really only matters in the most general sense, which is why the law is so broadly applicable. So um, intent really only comes into play 
um, in the willfulness requirement that the statute does say must willfully retain or convey uh, to someone not authorized to receive it. Um, and courts have essentially said that's that too is pretty broad, although it, it narrows it somewhat. It basically means you have to have uh, conveyed it or retained it knowing in some way that this was wrong which could mean really nothing more than that you know it's unlawful, that you know that you weren't supposed to do that. Um, but beyond that, in, intent is not really relevant in any meaningful way. So for example, the most, um, probably the most significant way in which the statute is broad in that regard is that it really is irrelevant under the statute whether or not you intended to benefit the public interest. Um, in fact, it's irrelevant if you objectively did benefit the public interest. And so where this has come up most frequently in the past is um, when individuals have been prosecuted under the act for doing what they claimed was whistleblowing. Um, so Reality Winner, for example, um, someone named Terry Albury, who was prosecuted um, under the Trump administration for leaking, uh, allegedly uh, mm -hmm. leaking information uh, that revealed uh, things about racial profiling that the FBI engaged in. Um, Edward Snowden, who, yeah. uh, you know, who, who, of course, has not you know, been in the U.S. Uh, in order to be tried, um, but who the government has indicated, you know, they, they believe violated the Espionage Act. Um, these are all people who claim that what they did was in the public interest and that they think the public interest substantially outweighed any danger to national security. By the way, Daniel Ellsberg also uh, was one of the very first prosecuted under the Espionage Act for leaking the Pentagon Papers and certainly said he was a whistleblower, did it in the public interest. Under the statute, though, there's no uh, there's no sort of relevant hook on which to hang a public interest defense. In other words, it's really irrelevant under the statute whether you subjectively had a public interest motivation or even whether objectively any harm to national security is outweighed by the public interest. And so where concerns have been raised in the past about the Espionage Act um, from a First Amendment perspective, it's, it's generally been in the context of prosecutions of media sources, people like Daniel Ellsberg or Edward Snowden or Reality Winner who give information to the media and they say, hey, wait a minute, we're not committing espionage. We were trying to benefit the public, but under the statute, that's largely irrelevant. Irrelevant. And in the in the minute we have left of this segment, Professor Kit Rouser, could you uh, just shed some light on how the Espionage Act has played out in the Mar-a-Lago case that's going on here? Yeah, absolutely. So first, just from a purely um, straightforward perspective of applying the statute. Mm -hmm. As the statute is written and as it's been interpreted by courts, um, I do think it's about as clear as something like this could be that um, President Trump did violate it, at least according to the information that's publicly known, um, because the statute is so broadly applicable. Um, it applies to the uh, willful retention or uh, unauthorized communication of national defense information, which, as I said, is defined by courts as something that's closely held by the government and could uh, reasonably be thought to be harmful if revealed or helpful to an enemy of the United States. Um, and 
those are very broad terms. Um, it's there's little question, at least according to the public reporting, as to what mm-hmm. President Trump did that he fell within that. You know, he was repeatedly asked to return it. Um, there's really no argument that this wasn't willful retention, that he wasn't aware um, that uh, he wasn't supposed to be holding on to it. And and I would add a really important point with respect to the SB with respect to Mar-a-Lago and the Espionage Act is that under the Espionage Act. I think that Trump's claims that he declassified the information with his mind or otherwise um, is actually irrelevant um, because if he really did declassify it in a way where the only act of declassification was in his head or possibly conveyed to one or two confidants, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then that really doesn't change the fact that effectively the information was still being closely held by the government because Trump didn't communicate in any meaningful way that the classification status had changed oh you're going back to espionage act i get it exactly yeah yeah so yeah so that's you know there's obviously a lot more that could be said but i think the the most important initial point is simply that as a matter of straightforward application i think the statute absolutely applies no thank you for sharing that with us we'll be back after a short break to talk about transparency and the separation of powers We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Professor Kit Roser, let's talk about your book. It is titled Accountability, Transparency, Executive Power, and the U.S. Constitution. What is this book about? Um, So it's, in a nutshell, what I try to do is uh, pull together sort of different areas of inquiry to discuss what I call the constitutional law of government secrecy. Um, And that is, I discuss uh, the way in which various areas of constitutional doctrine, um, particularly those involving presidential power and also some involving the First Amendment, um, combine to um, uh, sort of create powerful tools of secrecy on the part of the executive branch and secrecy, some of which is necessary, but some of which I argue can be excessive and can defeat transparency and accountability. Um, and then at the same time, I offer my own kind of counter vision of the Constitution, how I think uh, presidential power uh, components of the Constitution, as well as aspects of the First Amendment, are uh, best interpreted and how those uh, interpretations would foster a more accountable government and one that allows for necessary secrecy, um, but that curbs excessive secrecy that that defeats government transparency and accountability. So let's let's get into it and parse that apart. Um, first, um, I just want to make sure this is not something that I'm missing. Classified information or any any innuendos about classified information is not mentioned in the Constitution, is it? 
That that's absolutely right. And the okay. constitution doesn't talk about that. Okay. Not explicitly. Yeah. Not explicitly. Yeah. Um you you talked about some uh cases where classification and secrecy can be excessive. I'm now intrigued. Can you give an example yeah. or two? Yeah, so absolutely. So uh, one example just piggybacks off of our last segment. Um, so as I as I mentioned there, um, with respect, so the Espionage Act is, is a good example, and it's an example of how secrecy can go too far as a matter of uh, uh, legislation, as a matter of executive implementation of legislation, and as a matter of judicial review. Um, so as I mentioned there, the Espionage Act is, is very broadly worded, and it's broadly worded in such a way that raises concerns, at least insofar as it relates to and is used against um, people who uh, share information with the media that's mm -hmm. in the public interest where that information is classified. Um, so because of the breadth of the statutory language, in, in theory, um, it could be applicable to sources, media sources who convey virtually any information that's classified to newspapers. So you're going head to head with the First Amendment. Yes, yes. Um, and, and I should add, I had mentioned when we talked about the Espionage Act in the last segment, that there's also a provision of the Espionage Act that criminalizes the same kind of, you know, conveying of, quote, national defense information, even on the part of people who are not themselves in some sort of relationship of confidentiality with the government. So in theory, Although the government has never brought a prosecution against a newspaper, in theory, Section 793E of the Act on paper really looks like it could justify prosecution of a newspaper. So Section 793E yeah. is the section that we hadn't talked about. We had talked about Section 793D, right? In the, uh... Yes, and um, I should say 793E is almost identical to 793D. So virtually everything that we talked about before in terms of the terminology and, and what it prohibits is applicable to 793E. The main difference is that 793D um, applies to people who initially obtained the information lawfully. So I that see. would usually be people who work for the government who have a security clearance, people like Reality Winner, for example, who had been a contractor and obtained the information lawfully with a security clearance. Um, 793E pertains to people who had the information unlawfully in the first instance. And that is potentially even more troubling because that could include, say, newspapers that yeah. get information from a source. Um, so that's an example of... A, a statute that was drawn, um, I would say carelessly. I mean, there's some very interesting history and I know we don't have time to get into it, but there's some very interesting history behind the drafting of the act um, in a nutshell. Uh, the best research that's been done um, on the legislative history uh, suggests that the Congress that passed the act really did not intend to make it as open-ended as it did, um, but they, arguably drafted quite carelessly and in sort of a rush on the eve of our entry into World War II. You also see failings of the executive. World War I, right? 1917. World War I, I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. World War I. Yes, yes. got to keep those wars straight. Yes, there World you War go. I. Um, you also see arguably abuses by the executive branch in applying the act. Um, it, it had only... 
up to the Obama administration, the act had only been applied against people who leaked information to the media a few times. Um, the Obama administration, and this surprises people to hear that it was it was Obama that had a sub substantial hand in this, but in the Obama administration, more than twice as many prosecutions were brought against um, uh, leaks of information to the media than in all previous administrations uh, combined. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and the Trump administration outpaced the Obama administration. Um, one one interesting little footnote to all that is I read that just this past weekend at a rally, uh, President Trump was joking about sending whoever leaked the um, draft opinion in the Dobbs case uh, uh, to to the media that they should be sent to prison. And to be clear, as far as I know, that was not a classified document. So, uh, yeah. it, it, and it's not a national security document. So it wouldn't fall under the Espionage Act, but Trump described it as, I believe he, he said at this rally that it was basically like leaking national security information and that they should uh, be in prison. And the irony there is he was referencing the Espionage Act, which he now is caught up with himself, though though in a very different way. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, but I, I want to ask this follow follow up question. When you brought up that example, um, I know the answer, but I just want to clarify it anyway. So, classification of classified information is almost always national security related. Yes, that's right. So, I can't think of another sort of field that it would apply to, actually. Yeah, no, that's right. It's really by definition. Um, I mean, partly the the origin of it, the idea of it was always protecting national security. Um, and in fact, the executive orders, the current one, as well as previous ones that that specifically define what makes information classified um, has always defined it in terms of national security. Um, so yeah, it's really specific to national security. One of the things that... Uh has come up in the last two segments of our conversation is this sort of lopsidedness when it comes to uh, classified information. Like Congress is in the dark, it seems like. Uh, it's like they're at the mercy of the executive branch. Do I, am, am I close to the mark on this one? I think you are. I, I, I really think you are. In fact, I'm just remembering now um, reading an anecdote. I think this was maybe just a month ago. Uh, Senator Patrick Leahy, um, I think, recently uh, released a, a biography or a memoir of some sort. Um, I, I, I haven't read it yet, but I was reading a really fascinating uh, anecdote that someone passed on uh, from his uh, from his uh, work, which is that he talked about the fact that he was part of kind of a select uh, group of uh, Congress of senators and uh, House leaders who were privy to you know sort of the most secretive intelligence briefings uh, on the eve of the Amer uh, the eve of the American invasion into Iraq, mm -hmm. um, and he tells a story about how you know he was privy to these briefings and was factoring them in as he was deciding how to vote uh, with respect to you know support for the administration um, with respect to Iraq. And on a couple of occasions, he was out and about in his neighborhood when some person he'd never met before jogged by or walked by or biked by, something like that. And, and got his attention and basically said, you know, when you go back to the Hill tomorrow, ask them to see 
folder 11 or folder 15. They use some sort what? of word. Yes. Yeah. Now this is a fascinating story and I'll have to Google it afterward to see what book it's related to, but I yeah. think this could be a new memoir. Um, and anyway, Lee, he went back and did that and realized that when he knew what to ask for, that it shed light on things that the administration had not been offering in these confidential briefings and in fact suggested that they had been misleading uh, uh, sort of the group of senators and, and um, high-level representatives that they had What a story. Um, yeah, no, it's an amazing story. And I'll, I'll have to, you know, go back to actually read it in the original source. Um, but that said, the reason I mentioned that is, is not just because that story is so striking, but because it really rang true for me um, from in, in terms of what I have read over the years more broadly about congressional oversight of intelligence gathering of other national security activities on the part of the executive branch. And Are the, you taking us to your own vision of how this should work? Remember uh, earlier you said you have a yeah, vision? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, real briefly, just to kind of wrap up the bat, the, the kind of what does happen. Um, so what you hear time and time and time again is that the oversight system is broken um, because it's reliant upon oftentimes a very small group of Congress people and senators getting information from the executive branch and the executive branch often holding back um, uh, valuable information. And oftentimes Congress people not even knowing the proper questions to ask, not being yeah. able to staff people with that, et cetera. In terms of how things should work, right? It, there, there's no one size fits all answer, of course, but I think part perhaps the foundation of, of a solution. And, and to be clear, there's not one solution, right? Mm -hmm. There are myriad solutions. Um, each particular problem, whether we're talking about the Espionage Act, whether we're talking about congressional oversight of uh, wartime activity or congressional oversight of intelligence gathering, or whether we're talking about something else like executive privilege or the state secrets privilege, each problem has such specific contours that demands kind of its unique set of answers. But I think there is a foundation at the heart of all of these various potential solutions. Um, and that is essentially uh, making room for a larger role for the other branches um, to have a say in national security as yeah. well as information policy, right? Which, which yeah. gets back to the example that we started with of, um, the fear that courts seem to have of second guessing classification. And you so you see something similar on the part of Congress people that, you know, oftentimes I think um, members of the intelligence committees or the gang of eight who receive these secret briefings, um, you know, sometimes you'll hear after the fact from folks like Leahy, who I, I think are really sincere that they feel cheated and, and, and they asked everything they, you know, they needed to ask, but didn't receive what they, thought they were warranted to receive. But, you know, sometimes members of Congress are quite complicit um, in not being informed because it makes their lives easier. They can say if something goes wrong, gosh, I didn't know that. You're not liable for it. Right, right. That terrible administration, they should have told me. Um, and they don't have to worry about being uh, criticized if information leaks or if something goes wrong. Um, so I think at the heart of this, uh, of any solution to any of these problems is you need more buy-in um, from all three branches. Yeah. One thing. Um, I mean, the heart of so many of these problems is excessive deference to the executive branch, which takes myriad forms depending on the issue that we're talking about. Exactly. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Kit Roser as we get into the perspective.
The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Professor Kitroser, what would you say to those who fear that our government actually discloses too much information? Uh, a prime example of this that even irks me personally is when our, in our during our military conflicts, we say, you know, uh, we put a limit uh, on our uh, sort of presence of our soldiers, which which is a good thing. I, I'm not against it, but we announce it to the world so our enemy knows. But this has become a thorny issue, and a lot of people talk about that. Yeah. So I, I think as a general matter, you know, obviously um, examples are, are very dependent upon the specifics, but as certainly as, as an overall matter, um, I do not see any of our key prob core problems uh, being that we reveal too much information mm -hmm. uh, to the American people. Um, more to kind of drill down a bit more though, beyond that, um, I think that when folks say, well, you know, ultimately we have to defer to the executive's judgment about what can be revealed because imagine, for example, if we reveal troop movements or imagine yeah. if we revealed um, the location of sensitive nuclear facilities. Um, I, I always sort of have two thoughts in response to that. You know, one of which is that in many ways, the examples that people often give, like the ones I just mentioned, those are examples you've probably heard as well, when people say why it's dangerous to disclose information. Yeah. In many ways, I think those examples demonstrate that we outside, those of us outside of the executive branch, including even, you know, many ordinary uh, Americans are more capable than we realize of making smart judgments about what is too dangerous to disclose and what isn't, because the reason those examples- Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because I think the reason those examples resonate is because we can all understand why it would be very dangerous to disclose those pieces of information. Um, and also, you know, I think sort of intuitively, we understand why we don't actually need to know those level of specifics um, uh, within the time frame in which they could be dangerous to disclose in order to uh, evaluate policy or in order to, in some other way, serve the public interest, right? So, which, which leads to the broader point that I think we really, most of us, but certainly, uh, you know, members of Congress, uh, members of the news media, et cetera, are much better positioned than we often assume that we are to make judgments about what it's too dangerous to disclose, what it's not too dangerous to disclose. Um, and certainly um, it is not, uh, decisions as to what's dangerous to disclose, what's not, are not um, you know, the result of some sort of impenetrable uh, magic formula, right? That we have no choice but to mm -hmm. leave to the executive to make in some mysterious ways. I think that that certainly judges and members of Congress and oftentimes members of the media who report on national security, often in consultation with uh, members of the national security establishment, um, are able to draw distinctions between things like troop movements that are upcoming, um, uh, you know, sensitive facility locations, things like that, 
um, and information that is of a more general nature, that relates more broadly to policymaking, that may be historical in nature, um, information that, that is relatively safe to disclose. Um, All of this goes to the yeah. point that you made in the last segment, that the judicial and the legislative branches of our government can actually get more involved. Yeah, I, I think are, are capable. Yes. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. And it also gets back to a point you raised, which I thought was a great one, when you talked about the judiciary uh, being much less fearful um, to wade into and evaluate technical arguments in other areas where they yeah. don't have particular expertise. Um, and I, I guess I would also say, I think the uh, Trump Mar-a-Lago situation also provides some interesting food for thought about all of this, because this is a case, and for now, you know, we're all largely relying on, on what's been publicly reported. Uh, there's a lot we probably all don't know, so we all have to, you know, kind of uh, evaluate the case with that understanding, but at least based on what's been publicly reported, um, some of the information that uh, Trump reportedly held, um, I think is information that it is not unreasonable to think could potentially be dangerous if um, uh, if disclosed, particularly if disclosed um, in secret in a way that the public doesn't know was disclosed, say to people acting on behalf of certain foreign governments um, mm -hmm. who just happen to you know, access this private facility by paying enough money to do so. Um, so that's actually another good example where I think we could all benefit by actually thinking critically about what we know about the information uh, that was disclosed and asking ourselves, is this information uh, that could harm national security if revealed, is it information that it was in the public interest to disclose? Is it information that was in the public interest to disclose, say to someone who happens to have access to Mar-a-Lago, but not to the public at large? Um, can we actually make those judgments? And, and at present, um, I'm afraid, we're seeing so far much of the commentary about uh, uh, Mar-a-Lago um, uh, includes commentary from supporters of Trump who are suggesting that what he did was perfectly appropriate, not at all harmful to national security. And yet in the same breath, you know, many of those critics laugh along with Trump when he says the person who leaked the Dobbs opinion should be supreme court uh should, draft. right should, yeah should, should be in prison for hurting national security and this all goes to say i think that's an example of a place where much of the commentary uh doesn't involve critical thinking about whether we can judge what kinds of documents would hurt national security to reveal what kinds of documents may be um uh may be way more heavily in favor of revelation being revealed because it's in the public interest one hurt national security very much um, it's a good example of a place where I, I think many people can make good judgments about that, but much of the public commentary seems, you know, informed as much by partisanship as to that and kind politics, of yeah. making. Yeah. Professor Kid Roser, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research. 
and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.